the ideas of hysteria has originated from this idea that women's um, maladies of women's malaise is linked to the uterus. A lot of their notions of e emotionality was also linked to their um, uterus or the problems with, with our uterus or our womb, which is a center. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, Series 3, I'll be exploring sleep, the science of emotions and fast fashion. And I'll be asking my guests questions like, is baby brain a real thing? Is everything we've been told about skincare wrong? And why aren't we talking more about dementia? This is a podcast that asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Weepy women and angry men. It's a cliche for a reason, right? But what if men and women didn't experience different emotions? What if they felt exactly the same, but were simply conditioned to express it differently? Professor Pragya Agarwal, is a data and behavioural scientist, a visiting professor of social inequities and injustice at Loughborough University, and the founder of a research think tank, The 50% Project. She is also the author of five books, most recently, Hysterical, Exploding the Myth of Gendered Emotions. In this episode, we talk about whether women really do cry more than men, the myth of the hysterical woman and the role the uterus has historically played, how emotional expression varies over cultures and societies all over the world, and why we need to talk more about the biases in science and data collection. I learn buckets from Pragya's work, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Pragya, thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Let's start with the basics. What is the myth about male and female emotion? So the myth is that men feel certain emotions and women feel certain emotions. There's also the myth that women are more emotional than men, mm -hmm. that women are more reactive to feelings, they tend to display their feelings more, and that men are more rational and more reasoned and more logical. So this kind of binary divide is set up in our society where men and women are conforming to these stereotypes. So they're assigned these stereotypes. Um, and we this tends to go on and this affects so many areas in our society and the way we act and react to people. And your fundamental premise, well, the fundamental premise of hysterical is that emotions are not hardwired into us. We're not born with them in our brain, that men and women do not differ in their internal experience of emotions, but they express emotion differently depending on their social status, organization, rules of cultural display and norms which they are socialized in. Basically, you believe we are taught to express ourselves in certain ways. 
Yes, absolutely. You said it perfectly. This is exactly what I'm doing, trying to do in hysterical. First of all, I, I think when we talk about emotions, we haven't really considered how the gendering of emotions underpins a lot of our gender inequality in our mm. society. So if we legitimize certain emotions in men and not in women or certain in women and not in men, we are saying that when women express certain emotions, they can be penalized for it. So certain powerful emotions, we have a hierarchy of emotions, certain emotions like anger, um, which are more associated with power, are only uh, allowed or more legitimate and legitimized in men. And women, when they show anger, are penalized. They're called hysterical or they're called over-emotional or they're, they're overreacting, which means that they can be invalidated for even very legitimate and perfectly valid opinions. And we also know from research that women who are seen to be angry or more angry are paid much less than men who are seen to be angry. So this affects the pay gap and gender pay gap as well. Mm. But what I'm trying to say is that there is nothing innate about these emotions. It's not that men and women are hardwired in a different way. It's not that men and women are feeling certain emotions in different ways or reacting to as a group, as a homogeneous group. It is that we have certain display rules and feeling rules in a society which we are socialized into from a very young age, from the moment we are born, so that we are conforming to it, so that we learn these behaviors and we try and adapt our behaviors and our emotions and our feelings to those things. So there's a gap between what we feel and what we express. There can be a gap between what we feel and what we express. And this is this creates a lot of mental and physical health problems in both men and women as well. So the basic underlying myth of this binary divide between men and women and the fact that there are some innate differences between men and women is what is the root cause of this problem. Before we recorded this, I was at the doctor and she asked me what I was doing today. And I told her I'm interviewing a data and behavioral scientist about the myth of gendered emotion. But the science argues otherwise. And she said, I don't need the science to know that. I just need to look at the men and women in my life. The women cry more than the men. The women worry more than the men. You cannot tell me that we aren't built differently. I'm sorry, I don't agree. Um, and I just said, listen to the episode, read her book. Let's <laughs> chat afterwards. But I think a lot of people hold this view. And I do understand where she's coming from. Women do cry more. And you give a scientific explanation for that. Women have more prolactin. But I think it's interesting to look at why we cry more in the first place, mm. that rather than crying because we are weaker or enfeebled or hysterical, which is what history has sort of said, a lot of the time women cry because they are angry and frustrated, but they know that a more palatable expression of that is tears rather than roaring and raging across the room, which is a typical and acceptable expression of masculine rage. And men know that when they're angry and frustrated, that crying is not something that they've stereotypically seen, that's been modeled, that they've been encouraged to do. So I'd love you just to talk a little bit more about the whole boys don't cry, women do cry more, what it all means. Yeah, I mean, that's very interesting coming from a doctor because we can talk a little bit more about how that plays into the gender health gap and how women are um, 
disadvantaged in the medical and healthcare domain because of this perception. It uh, it underlies this kind of, we know a lot that women are deemed to be more hysterical and not diagnosed and treated as quickly as men in certain conditions in the medical domain. Um, and, and certain women's conditions like endometriosis have been largely mm. dismissed and ignored as well. Um, but the fact is that the moment we are born, we are socialized into certain roles. The moment that our identities are assigned to us, we are perceived to be a certain way and people's implicit and explicit cues are, in, are imposed on us. And research shows that parents respond to boys and girls in different ways. So there's a lot of research that parents, who, even who are very egalitarian and who are very fair-minded and, and, and um, aiming to raise the children in a very equal manner, respond to girls in as if they're more softer or weaker or fragile than boys who are uh, who are encouraged to take more risks. And so these kind of socialization, this kind of roles that we learn around us give us messages that certain feelings and emotions are valid in certain people and not. It isn't to say that some women might cry more than men or that women cry more than men or because of hormonal changes or hormonal differences. But it's not that all women are less a certain way and all men are a certain way. Mm. So when we talk about women cry more, why are we not considering or that women are more responsive to people's emotions or women are more maternal or women are more nurturing? Are we not? Why are we not considering that women are responding to the cues that have been given to us or the, the way that we've been raised from a very young age, the expectations that have been imposed on us, and also because because of the powerful power imbalance in our society, women become more hypervigilant of what is expected from them. We feel more stereotype threat. Women feel the need to please others as well because they are very aware, keenly aware of being lower down in the hierarchy and not having as much power in society. So this oppression hypothesis or the subordination hypothesis also shows that people who are lower down in the hierarchy try and conform to the norms more than people who hold more power in society. People who hold more power can actually have the freedom to, to contravene or to go against the norms or gender norms, and they wouldn't be penalized as much as people who are low down in the hierarchy and have less power, and they have to do more to please others in society as well. So which means that women also are expected to smile more to create comfort for those around them. Yes, I mean, you point out that resting bitch face yes. is not something that men are ever accused of. And of course, sometimes it is tempting to rely on that stereotype to know that when you're really affected by something, you will get more you will get more out of someone if you cry than if you shout. If you shout, you would just be instantly dismissed. You know, it's inappropriate, it's threatening, it's it, all these kind of expressions. Whereas if you cry, people tend to empathize. And I think women learn at a young age that that is, as you say, a more acceptable expression of that emotion. I was also really interested to read when you were talking about crying that leaving aside the prolactin, as you said, it's not that everyone has more mm -hmm. prolactin and everyone cries more, that what we know about crying it tends to come from self-report data. And the limits of self-report data in science is that we rarely 
know ourselves as well as we think we do. You see this in sleep all the time. You know, people say, oh, I only slept for one hour last night. And then they'll be filmed and they'll have slept for like six. So you have men saying, oh, I cry. I think it's on average between six and mm-hmm. 17 times a year. And women cry between, I think, 34 and 60 times a year. But they are reporting that themselves. And women probably round up and men probably round down, right? Exactly. And and there's all this bias in data that we, we are relying on because it's very difficult to observe a longitudinal uh, data and collect longitudinal data from a large sample of people. So often these sample sizes are quite small and they rely on self-reported data. And as you say, they are also conforming to these expectations. So men, there has been this notion that men who cry, that boys don't cry, that men who cry are feeble or not as masculine. And so either they don't express their emotions in that way, they they take out their rage or their anger or their sadness or their grief, all the other emotions in different ways, the way they display. And women might be reporting it more easily because that is the expected norm. So even when they're feeling angry, we are often sometimes relying on tears because we are likely to be taken more seriously. Tears might be an expression or display of emotions which is socially acceptable, but the real emotion behind me, behind it, might be just a completely different emotion, ranging from anger, rage, grief, anything like that, frustration. So we, it is very difficult to know what exactly this gap is between the experience of emotion and the display of emotion. So you have to sort of separate the, the, the root from the branch in that mm-hmm. a man mm-hmm. might perform in one way and a woman might perform in another way, but they might be feeling exactly the same thing inside. And, and as you also point out in the book, which is fascinating, it's also really difficult to explain what you're feeling inside because different cultures and different countries have a different definition of an expression. So in Poland, they don't have a word for disgust. In Tahiti, they don't have a word for grief. Instead, they equate it to being ill or sick. But that doesn't mean that you're not feeling the same things inside. And that's the real limit, isn't it, of a lot of these data sets being done in Western Europe and North America. And you've got this brilliant term for it, which is terminological ethnocentrism, which is the assumption that English words and values can somehow map across all cultures and societies. And that's, again, presumably a real shortfall when we're trying to kind of make generalized statements about not just the expression of male and female emotion, but just emotion generally. Yes, a lot of scientific research, we have to understand, is also based in in this kind of um, ethnocentrism that a lot of research is done in Western countries, mostly in the UK and the US with the English speaking audience, because it's easy to do the, that. There's more funding here. There's more mm. resources here. Um, there's also these stereotypes that are somehow imposed. In, and when I look across the emotion research, that we are more individualistic societies here in the US and UK or the Western countries are more individualistic society. And when cross-cultural studies are done, it is automatically assumed that the more Asian countries are more collectivist societies where they are they are community-based. And so those kind of stereotypes play a role in 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 creating these biases and and perceptions as well and and, and swaying the results in scientific research. But yes, I found this um 
this was one of the most interesting parts of research for me and in, for the book um, that about how different cultures have these different um, expressions and what happens when you can't map it exactly to the emotion. Does it mean that we are not feeling the same emotions? Does it mean that we don't feel the same way? Does it mean that um, we don't feel as much sadness or grief or anger just because we don't have the word for it? And there's a there's I, I've looked at different studies that were done in the past when with communities that were not exposed to Western societies as much and were more more secluded. And so they were not exposed to television or media from Western societies to understand how their language maps on, onto emotions. It it was really interesting to see that often the Western researchers, the scientists who went into these communities assumed that because they weren't talking about it or weren't showing the same emotions, they were either not feeling the emotion or or their facial expression, which might be showing a different emotion, mapped onto the same facial expression here in, in the US or the UK, just because they had the same facial expression. So there's also been this kind of myth um, in science or scientific research or emotion research for a very long time, which has underlined some of the technology that has been designed around that as well, that we have certain basic facial expressions and we have certain core emotions that map onto these facial expressions that across all cultures, everybody has the same emotions, same six or seven core emotions, and they map onto the same facial expressions. And a lot of our facial recognition technology and all the emotional AI is being built in, around this myth, which is which has now been proven that it's incorrect. It's actually not the case. You write that there's always been a tension between constructivists who believe that knowledge is constructed, not transmitted, and positivists who believe that emotions are genetically determined. Is this still the case in science today? Are neuroscientists and data and behavioural scientists very much split down the middle? Um, it seems to be. And um, I, they, there, there is a whole group of community of scientists or neuroscientists who believe that there is innate differences between men and women, um, that their, their brains are different, that they process emotions differently, they process things differently. And these myths were created a while ago. And um, a lot of our misogynistic and sexist theories are, are based in this as well. Um, and that's why we had books like Women Can't Read Maps and and uh, uh, Men Are From Mars and Women From <laughs> Venus. And it's, it's very much grounded in the historic idea, the dualism that per was perpetuated by Greek and ancient Greek and Romans in the antiquities, where they said that there is a very distinct dif difference between men and women or that men and women complete each other. They were two parts of the whole. And a lot of scientists took that to mean that they were very distinctly um, separate from each other and that they had some innate differences. Um, but there more and more neuroscience research is now showing that actually men and women, all men and all women do not have these differences. We do not have hypothalamus, which is larger in men, for instance, so that they can process more spatial, they have more spatial reasoning capabilities. That's just not the case. And and the problem lies in, again, the neuroscience research, where which is often based in small sample sizes. And because there is a publication bias where we have to show the way that academia works is that you have you have more likely to publish or get grants when you can show very distinct 
results, very, very clear results, um, and prove a certain hypothesis. That's kind of worrying, isn't it? That you're more likely to get a grant if you've basically sort of decided what your result is. I mean, there are bigger problems in academia, and I could go into a lot of <laughs> Fine, fair enough. Grants and funding work, there's obviously lots of status bias and people who already got big labs and big grants, they're more likely to receive the funding. So the, the mapping is often done in test conditions, not in real conditions in, in labs. And often the, the analysis is done between groups. And research is now showing, actually, researchers have shown, many researchers, that when you look at within group differences, they can be as distinct as between group differences, but they have not been recorded. Yes, I was fascinated to read this, that Gina Rippon, who's a neuroscientist who wrote, oh, what's it mm -hmm. called? The Gendered Brain? The Gendered Brain, yes. She, she obviously is a neuroscientist that famously argues mm -hmm. that the male and female brain are not different. She said in an interview with you that it would be so much more interesting and so much more variable to look at the differences within men and within mm -hmm. women rather than the differences between men and women. Actually, Gina Rippon and many of her collaborators and now propose this idea that our brains are more like mosaics rather than these kind of distinct areas of the brain which do distinct jobs. So it's not that one part of our brain does the spatial reasoning, one part of our brain processes emotions. We have many interconnected areas of our brain who which that process emotions in, in like a mosaic manner, which means that there can be differences between men and women, but doesn't mean that there would be differences between all men and all women. Some men might be more, it's more like a spectrum rather than these kind of binary divides. And I think the main idea behind this book and also the main problem or the myth of gender emotions is that we are, our society is built around these dualistic notion or this binary divide of men and women, and that there are certain masculine attributes and that there are certain feminine attributes. And neuroscience is refuting that but there are still neuroscientists who believe that that is the case. And unless we move away from these kind of binary dualistic notions of men behave in a certain way, that certain masculine attributes are aggressiveness and authority and dominance and maternal nurturing, all those kind of passive, more passive attributes are, are more feminine, we cannot really break these, these, these ideas or shatter these myths and move away to a more equitable society. Let's wind back in history and talk about the hysterical woman, which was used as a medical diagnosis right up until the 1980s. I couldn't believe that. In 1681, an English physician called Thomas Sydenham wrote, women, except for those who lead a hardy and robust life, are rarely quite free from hysteria. And hysteria was connected with the uterus. Why was that link or how was that link first established? So the term hysteria comes from the Greek word hysterikos, meaning from the womb. And if you go back as far back as the myth of the Jason and the Argonauts, there was a renowned mystic and healer who was a cousin of Jason. And he first linked women's madness and emotional outburst to a lack of normal sex life. So any single unmarried women or widows, the lack of orgasms, he believed, would lead to melancholy. And so when the young women of Argos, including the king's three daughters, rejected marriage, the gods punished them and caused madness. And so the women fled to the mountains and their rebellion was seen as a sign of madness, spurred on by this notion of uterine melancholy, a sadness of the uterus. So your uterus becomes 
so sad that it causes melancholy. And a lot of the ideas of hysteria has originated from this idea that women's um, maladies of women's malaise is linked to the uterus. A lot of their notions of e emotionality was also linked to their um, to their um, uterus or the problems with with our uterus or our womb, which was a center. So Hippocrates was one of the most well-known Greek physicians. And I write about him and how he, along with other ancient philosopher, believed that the uterus moved about in the body and he collided with other organs and caused a range of these kind of illnesses. <laughs> and it is what made women different to men. So this, this idea that um, this, this, their uterus or their womb was what made women different to men. They were a conundrum, a peculiarity. And we know that men held power in these societies, in the ancient societies. Men were the ones who were the physicians, writing books, um, treating people. So they saw women as, as delicate, having a delicate disposition, which led to these intense emotions and anxiety and depression and even infertility. And so because it was very much linked to the uterus on that premise alone, men were exempt from being hysterical. It always comes back to the classics, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. It does. It all starts. We have to look at history to know where we come from. This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Stripe and Stare a game-changing underwear brand that makes knickers so comfortable you forget you are wearing them. Because nothing great was ever achieved in uncomfortable pants. Stripe and Stair knickers are sustainably sourced from beechwood trees, use 95% less water in their production, and make knickers that are softer than cotton. I am a long-term fan of Stripe and Stair, not least because the material lies perfectly flat against the skin, meaning no VPL, which used to be the absolute bane of my life. Stripe and Stair knickers come in sizes 6 to 22 and are available to buy at Selfridges, Shopbop and Revolve, or if you shop direct at stripeandstair.com, you can get 20% off for the next month using the code WRITE20. That's R-I-G-H-T 20. So go on, buy yourself some undercrackers and think of this podcast every time you wear them. Huge thanks to Stripe and Stare. I was at a talk that Mary Beard was doing the other day about kind of oh. feminism through the ages. And she said, I think she was asked, you know, what was the feminist viewpoint in, in the class clearer? And she said, well, we don't know because women didn't write any books. They weren't mm -hmm. poets. They weren't flaneurs. If they wrote books, they wrote them in private. We, we can't possibly know how women thought about womanhood because there's just no evidence from it. We see this, I think, most famously in literature, or one of the most famous examples in literature is Charlotte Perkins Gilman's short story in 1982, The Yellow Wallpaper. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure lots of listeners will be familiar with this story as, I can't remember which it was part of, but it was definitely part of the English syllabus, either for GCSE or A-level English, because certainly I studied it. And I mean, it reads like a horror story, doesn't it? For For the uninitiated, it's a woman who is deemed hysterical. And is she a writer? She was trying to be a writer, yes. And so she was, um, and a lot of the women were prescribed this this uh, this uh, treatment that they would be kept away from society, protected, so that they could 
have time to temper their over excitability and hysteria, hysteria. And because they were so weak and fragile during this state, they were almost kept imprisoned. And it wasn't at, at all considered that how the societal oppression and repression could be contributing to their to mm. the malaise and to the depression and anxiety. Instead, they were prescribed the same thing that was actually causing the problem in the first place. It is a horror story. And often they weren't allowed books or even to write. They just had to, just had to stare at the yellow wallpaper, didn't she? Yeah, because that would excite them even further and anything that would cause overexcitability was forbidden. You also write about conduct books, which we now know of as sort of slightly humorous mini books that you can find on the carousel at the front of the bookstore. And it will be like rules for married women from 1920. And they're quite funny. They're kind of stocking fillers. But they're also really quite awful because you write that conduct books, which were a huge thing throughout history, really limited women. So these conduct books were, again, mostly written by men. And they primarily targeted young women. And what they did was to give these kind of detailed, extensive codes of behavior that women should be conforming to, to make them more attractive to marriage, because marriage was seen as the ultimate destiny, because women, unmarried and single women, were more prone to hysteria. And so these were kind of a backlash to women becoming more independent and destabilizing the social structures. But now also we see. I mean, this has carried on in different ways that we see a lot of self-help self and self-care movement has been primarily targeted women. We've also seen that even in business, there I, I talk about it in the book, there are more articles for women about how to negotiate, how to act in the workplace, how to adapt to this. So there are more guidance for women to change their behaviors and adapt to certain things and to conform to what is expected from them so that they don't cause discomfort for people around them. So hysteria died out as a diagnosis in the 80s, but you argue that it was simply replaced by another term, borderline personality disorder. Is that still the case? In 2021, according to the American Psychiatric Association, about 76% of people receiving a BPD or borderline personality disorder diagnosis are still women. Um, we don't know whether this is a diagnostic or a sampling basis, but we know that when hysteria and neurosis were removed from the uh, diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders by the American Psychiatric Association, women were still likely to be overdiagnosed with a range of psychiatric illnesses and overprescribed medication for mental, mental illnesses because their physical pain was often underestimated and attributed to psychosomatic causes. Right. So these gender roles were still being imposed that when if women had things like in anger. It was seen as inappropriate, intense anger and a masculine characteristic and so transgressive in women. And so it was seen as that they were, they, they, it, it was seen as something called an angry woman syndrome and assigned a borderline personality disorder. And so it basically was just replacing the idea of hysteria. And it was, even at that time in the 80s it, and 90s, it was occurring predominantly in women by a more than four is to one or three is to one ratio. So, um, and the, some of the symptoms included things like impulsiveness or emotional uncertainty and liability. 
which can be perfectly reasonable things for a human being. What I talk about in the book about the gender health gap, I just I think that the labels have changed and the symptoms have been rewritten, but we're still seeing that women's emotions are being pathologized and misread and misinterpreted. And it couldn't be that it's something that women suffer more than men. It is. It is possible. Um, what I talk about in the book is that in the 80s and 90s, how the symptoms of hysteria and neurosis, the right, labels yes. were just changed mm-hmm. to BPT. And now, even if women are more likely to suffer from mental health or or depression and anxiety, we have to consider why that is the case. Is it because women are not allowed to express certain emotions, so they internalize these emotions and expressions, which means that women ruminate more, women uh, dwell on these things more, women are more expected to please others, and if they don't, they feel guilty, they feel sad, they feel unhappy with themselves. which creates an added burden and strain. I also talk about the emotional labor and mental labor in the book about how women are expected to do more emotional labor, which means that they have to uh, overperform and overmodulate their emotions, which also has an effect on their mental health. So even if it is the case that women are suffering more from it, we have to understand and try and go to the root cause of the problem as to why that might Mm. be the case. So it's systemic rather than genetic, essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another myth that you bust is that women are better at self-regulation. There's this idea, particularly in children, that girls sit still, you know, they don't engage in as much horseplay, they're better at paying attention. There's also the myth that women are better at multitasking, which, to be fair, I do see playing out all the time. (laughs) But the neuroscience says this is bullshit, doesn't it? Again, once again, how much of this is socialization mm. and how much of it is innate? I see my twin girls, they are very active. They cannot sit still to the degree that I'm exhausted all the time <laughs> because I just like sit still for one second, please. And every time I speak to somebody, they're like, oh, at least you don't have boys. Girls are quieter and easier to get on with. And And this is also the reason why we know that ADHD and other symptoms, other um, associated associated symptoms are not diagnosed as easily in girls because they are they learn to conform to a certain way. So girls are more likely to be expected to sit still in classrooms and schools, which means that they can pass on off very easily to not have these. And when they come home, they express this because they have a release of these emotions that they have been modulating and suppressing all through the day. So yes, it, it we have to really understand that a lot of our behavior stem from the way that we are socialized into these rather than something that is innate. And it's very difficult to separate that, the innate behaviors from socialization behavior until and unless we carry out some kind of a controlled experiment. But it is, there's a large amount of um, anecdotal, uh, observational studies, experimental studies to show that girls are more likely to conform to their expectations than boys and men are. There's been a massive surge recently in female diagnoses of ADHD though, hasn't Mm -hmm. there? Yes, absolutely. And we have to understand why this was not happening for a very long time, because a lot of the symptoms of ADHD are very much um, something that man does not manifest 
similarly in girls and women i have been diagnosed with adhd as an adult and my symptoms are not that i'm over over um active or that i'm moving all the time although that manifests the same way in my in my child um but again yes i mean so much of it is because we have created these frameworks of of how men and women behave but also we have to understand that a lot of our um, medical diagnoses are very much based in andronormativity which means that it it is women's diseases and illnesses are considered as deviant from the norm men are the norm men are seen as the norm they are mostly used in um experimental studies as well um and and if if a particular illness manifests differently in women they're less likely to be diagnosed i want to end on asking about something that i also had no idea about one of many many things that i had no idea about before i read hysterical which is the idea of hormone plasticity i did not know that testosterone could be the production of testosterone could change in accordance with how you express emotion and that that can have an effect as well on female emotion could you talk a little bit about testosterone's role in our emotional expression so there's been this misconception for a very long time that the levels of testosterone are fixed and unchanging so we have these parameters which are which are which are considered permissible in men and women more and more such now is showing that in our culture especially as men are pushed into more powerful positions and women are discouraged from showing power and authority those kind of gender socializations both external expression and the internalized we internalize these expectations as well can lead to changes normal testosterone level in men and women so if men are engaging in more of these testosterone fueling behavior and women are curbing these behaviors then this gendered behavior or this gender socialization can also modulate t- testosterone and so this is this modulating of our testosterone is something that we have to understand to accept that our brains are malleable our hormones are plastic our brains are also malleable and that there's something called neuroplasticity which changes our brains as we go through life as we conform to societal expectations as we take triggers and cues from people around them as we internalize these behaviors the way that parental influence can also in early years can influence which characteristic become more significant in children and the way they express themselves um which aspect of a child's emotional and cognitive function develop more than others can also change their brains so as much as we talk about innate abilities and innate characteristics we have to understand our brains are plastic and flexible and changing constantly and our hormonal levels can be fluctuating as well depending on how we are internalizing these norms and how we are conforming to these 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 behaviors how which kind of behaviors we are engaging in as well so a woman in a position of authority produces more testosterone it is very likely but as i said studies are still lacking in it but there there's some initial initial results to show that that is the case that that more more powerful and authority based um activities can fuel more testosterone in both men and women and then it becomes a sort of chicken and an egg situation doesn't Absolutely. it that the more authority the more testosterone but then the the inverse of that is that the less authority 
the less of this hormone. Yes, and we know that, I mean, on, on the other side, we know that women face double bind bias. Women are expected to um, not, women are assumed to not have the leadership qualities. Women are assumed to have more feminine qualities where they're not more as aggressive and authoritative and dominant as men, while men are expected and assumed to have these. So when a leader is being considered, for instance, in workplace, I've seen that in a lot of examples, even working as a consultant, men are prioritized over women because they are assumed to be more of a leader. And we, there are numerous research studies which I recount in the book about how when people are asked what a leader is, they they assume that it's more likely to be a man, man and they are more happier to be led by a man than a woman. Another angle to this, that we assume that a leader should act in a certain way and behave in a certain way. Because for so long through history, the idea of leadership has been associated with aggressiveness, authority, dominance, all those kind of masculine attributes. So, and, and reason and emotion have been kept separate. So emotionality is not good for a leader. That is what has been the kind of impression or idea for a very long time as well. So that, yes, as it, it creates kind of a chicken and egg situation. It creates a vicious cycle. It also creates kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. Mm. On that note, I really recommend a book by Arwa Madawi, who's a Guardian columnist called Strong Female Lead, which is all of these examples of female leadership from the top to the grassroots from all over the world. Um, it's a really fascinating book. But... Back to hysterical. Thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right and talking about some of your findings. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a huge pleasure. This episode of Doing It Right was hosted and exec produced by Pandora Sykes. Production is by Joel Grove. Subscribe now on any major pod platform to get the episodes as soon as they land.